I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. We're going to talk a little bit about the Derek Chauvin trial, as well as this really incredible poll that came out by Gallup last week. Uh, detailing the decline of church membership over the last several years. And then later in the pod, Autumn and I are going to talk about two brand new podcasts that Good Faith Media has recently released. And then we're going to sit down with one of our favorite guests of all time, Dr. Terrell Carter. And you will not want to miss that interview with Dr. Carter. So stay tuned. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas a womanist in ministry and the host of a new podcast, The Raceless Gospel, from Good Faith Media. We're going to talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Season one of The Raceless Gospel has five episodes, five Sundays, if you will. We're going to take you to church each episode. We're going to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship through the structure of a church service. And each episode, we're joined by a special guest who will bring a word the Raceless Gospel Podcast, five episodes, all available March 22nd. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we march into and beyond race, religion, and politics. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, how are things in your world these days? Well, we got Jesus out of the tomb. The kids remembered how to wear church clothes. Um, We only had to like very gracefully dismiss ourselves twice during the service. So overall, I think we're doing great and we survived Easter. So what you're saying is that there was a moment or two during this last weekend where Jesus, it was iffy if he was going to get out of the tomb. It was. It was. You have, you know, when a three-year-old's bladder is involved, things are always a little bit dicey. (laughs) Uh, How are y'all doing? We're doing well, but uh, hey, I want to go back to that for a second because I don't want to just gloss over that. I mean, this is the first time in how many months that you've been inside a church building for a worship service? What was that like? 12, 13 months. Yeah, what was was it like? It was great. You know, I realized that I had not sung in a mask. And that was really hard as someone who likes to hit the soprano parts and it like takes a lot of breath. I kept like, like my mask would like suck into my nostril and it was, it was distracting. Uh, but I was that a couple of times. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, I wasn't expecting to be as like emotional. I mean, I wasn't crying or anything like that. It wasn't any kind of like manipulation on part of the church leaders, but just to be back in a place, there were some folks whose faces I hadn't seen in over a year and just all being together and singing and the fact that it was Easter Sunday, there was something just really magical about it. That is fantastic. Well, yeah, we were there on the other side of the auditorium uh, mm-hmm. that you were on. Assigned seating. Yeah. Assigned so seating, we can be safe. practicing social distancing and everything. And it really was. It was fantastic. And I hope that you and uh, anybody listening out there just had a, a wonderful Easter holiday. If you're in person or not, uh, we really hope you had a great Easter holiday and uh, to all of our uh, Jewish friends who observed Passover, you had a great Passover, and then Ramadan's uh, coming up as well. And so we want to wish all of our uh, Muslim friends uh, a wonderful and blessed uh, Ramadan as well. So glad Easter went well, Autumn. Um, some things in the news this week. Uh, the Derek Chauvin trial is still underway up in Minnesota. 
Uh, what are your thoughts on it so far? I am glad that they're taking the time that they're taking, that they're listening to, you know, all the sides. I, of course, I'm going into this biased, so it's hard for me to really separate things out, but it, it seems like a slam dunk to me. I'm continuing to be, you know, optimistic. Mm-hmm. I have heard some reports that they may, there's like the great they, right? The royal they will let him be a scapegoat. And be like, okay, now police violence is, you know, not yeah. a thing anymore. And so I think either way, there, no matter how this trial turns out, there is work to do. Amen. Amen. And later on in the pod, you and I sat down with uh, Reverend Dr. Terrell Carter, who's the Chief Executive Officer at RISE, uh, but has also been a police officer, has uh, been a, the- a theologian at Central Seminary in Kansas, uh, just a, a wonderful, wonderful friend to the pod. And we talked to him a little bit about the trial, and he's got some incredible insights, not only into the Chauvin trial, but into a recent uh, case out of St. Louis where he lives that uh, will just make you shake your head uh, and just un- really hopefully come to an understanding why we need police reform in this country and mm-hmm. uh, and still continue the fight for racial justice. So um, don't miss that interview at the end of the pod. Well, yeah, not I only, do yeah, s- go ahead. Sorry, I do see if Derek Chauvin is found not guilty, I see another summer erupting of, of protest marches and, and I plan to be there. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, either way, and you and I have talked about this uh, offline before, either way, how this trial goes, it is going to be significant. Uh, whether he is found guilty, there's going to be a, a validation that there is a desperate need for police reforming in this country. Uh, there's going to be a sense of justice, uh, finally, uh, for the African-American community, only from the standpoint that this is such just a microcosm of what African-Americans have been experiencing for centuries in this country. But maybe, just maybe, it gives them a little bit of hope. And then mm-hmm. if he's found not guilty, I mean, here we are again, uh, and the, the cycle continues. And I think the marches that we would see this going into the summer would are going to be even greater than they were last summer. Not only is the Chauvin trial going on in Minnesota, but there was another uh, piece of in- interesting information that hit the news this last week, and that was from Gallup. There was a poll that they released showing how church membership has decreased so significantly over the last decade, uh, moving from almost 70% all the way down to 47%. That's uh, has hit below the 50% um, for the first time uh, since they've been doing polling. So it was a very interesting mm-hmm. poll to analyze. Uh, people have been talking about it all week. I wrote an article about it this week, as well as Tony Cartledge uh, wrote an article about it at goodfaithmedia.org. So we encourage people to, to check those two articles out. But what do you think about it? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that it included synagogue, mosque, basically organized religion, of across the board. Um, the other thing I, I want to make sure that we put a fine tip on this is that it's not church attendance, which right. is obviously down right now because of COVID. It is church membership. Mm-hmm. So this is like, I, you know, changed my letter or, you know, whatever it is to be a part of, I just aged myself, didn't I? Yeah, you know, just a little bit, just a little bit. Do they still do that? This is not the transfer know. of letter. Uh... I have a QR code so I can come to your church, right? I've been docked. I'm good to go. But it, but it's membership. It's that, you know, 
it's it's not church attendance. And I think that's right. that's something that was getting skewed a little bit in the comments that I saw. Yeah, and that is a, a great delineation because what we have seen this this just isn't a reaction to the pandemic. Uh, even though if there were people on the fringe of leaving the church, certainly gave them a good uh, reason uh, to to disengage. But the reality is, there's the rise of the nons. People just not really seeing religion as important in their lives whatsoever or relevant to their lives whatsoever. Uh, there's a lot of uh, blame being placed at Christian nationalism and the rise of Christian nationalism. I and mean, that's what uh, Dr. Cartledge talks about in his article about how the church is, uh, has veered away from the teachings of Jesus. Uh, and really, the teachings of Jesus have been replaced by a conservative platform uh, political platform uh, to advance their causes. So uh, a mm -hmm. lot of interesting stuff there. In my article, I took a little different tact. I saw this uh, not necessarily as bad news, but as an opportunity uh, mm -hmm. to reframe the church, our theological understanding of what the church is, and our theological praxis. And I give seven uh, opportunities that we can explore and how we can change and provide better faith communities and that appeal to our better angels. So I hope mm -hmm. that people see this as an opportunity. It's a wake-up call, but also an opportunity to uh, create better faith communities for the future. Spoken like a true entrepreneur. You always <laughs> take those lows and you're like, but we can build it higher. This is a great opportunity. Yeah, and I thought you hit some really important parts, um, layering in our friend Starlet um, and the concept of making it a raceless gospel, because I think a lot of people don't see the church as a place where they feel like they fit. You know, it can be sort of an intimidating space to be anyway. Our time is precious. Um, all of those, you know, normal factors that get in the way. And then you go and you hear a message that is counter to everything that you believe, then that's not an inviting place you want to spend time voluntarily. Yeah, absolutely. So the more we can become, uh, we can become more hospitable to more people, as well as striving towards justice for more people, I think is a good thing. And uh, that's what I tried to convey in the article. Well, you mentioned Starlet Thomas. Uh, we're really excited about uh, Starlet and her new podcast, The Raceless Gospel, that was released a few weeks ago at Good Faith Media. You can listen to The Raceless Gospel on whatever platform you listen to podcasts, so it's really, really good. So uh, I know you've had some interaction with Starlet, so what do you think about The Raceless Gospel podcast? You know, the thing I love about Starlet and where really this seed of a podcast started is she is not afraid to just, you know, those like spots that are a little tender to talk about and you're not really sure as a socially constructed white person how to ask the questions that you have and starlet just takes her finger and just pokes at it she's like let's just look right at it let's talk about it i'm not awkward about it um and so i think that's been really interesting uh the first sort of part of the pot it's set up like a church service oh, and it's um, so good our media <laughs> producer cliff vaughn uh and starlet oh. just did a great job putting it together but it is they take you to church they do. And they have an amen corner and you have some organ music, Starlet sings, which is always a gift. And, but after that sort of church part, um, the preaching, I guess you might <laughs> call it, um, 
there's a, a segment where she sits with a guest and you sort of feel like you're on um, and Sheriff Andy Taylor's front porch because Cliff has layered in like cricket sounds and nighttime sounds. And it's sort of like someone came home with you for lunch after church and they stayed a little too long and the sun is setting. And now you're sort of hashing over what was spoken about mm. in the service. And you feel like, you feel like you're sitting there with them. And, you know, between the first episode is just seeing a guest and then um, of the bitter Southerner, who's just a great voice and perspective. And if you are, you know, even a tiny bit interested in this concept of race, um, or if you love someone who is, you should definitely take a listen. Absolutely. And not only do we have this incredible podcast, the Raceless Gospel Podcast, but we have another one that was released uh, just this week. Uh, poor Cliff, uh, our media producer, has been extremely busy uh, putting together these podcasts. Well, he shouldn't be so gifted. Sorry. <laughs> it's his problem. That's right. Uh, but uh, we have entered a partnership with three incredible incredible therapists uh, and counselors across the country, Kendall Rothless out of Texas, uh, Kendra uh, Frazier out of New York City, and Jillian Drader out of Vancouver, British Columbia. The three of them came together and pitched an idea to us that we absolutely loved. And they have created this podcast called Discovering Wholeness that really addresses trauma in an incredible a way they provide insightful analysis, but also give incredible tools on how to cope with trauma and to overcome trauma. Uh, and and when I say overcome, that's probably too strong a world because you're always living with it. You're, it's mm -hmm. constantly affecting you. And, and they taught me that. Um, and so, but it's just so well done. Discovering Wholeness Podcast. It's great. It's so good. And as someone who, you know, has been to therapy and loved, I'm a giant proponent of therapists, uh, four sixths of our family go to therapy. And so no stigma here. Right. Um, but one thing I really love about the podcast is they make trauma um, conversation accessible. Mm -hmm. um, and they permit you to um to say yes that was trauma in my life you know it doesn't have to be they, they describe it as like big t trauma and little t trauma mm -hmm. and i think that's really important that if you feel something like you're allowed to have that but sort of the like the dirty little secret of this podcast is that when you have a therapist you sort of want to know a little bit about them like i'm just a nosy person i'm like yeah but tell me about like why you're a therapist and like what what ruffles your feathers and so you get a little bit of a peek behind who they are as people mm -hmm. and what brought them to be healers and that's the part of it that i'm really enjoying yeah you know, and it just, it also echoes why I love working for Good Faith Media, because a lot of times in media and in our line of work, we get really involved in the more difficult topics as we discuss them, uh, talking about, you know, racial justice, as we just did, police reforming, uh, the Me Too movement, uh, the patriarchy of society and the church. And a lot of times it's really easy for us to provide analysis and reflection on these issues and offer our opinions about what's going on. But very seldom do media organizations come in on the backside of these things and say, you know what? We realize these issues are causing a lot of harm to people. And so let's use media in a constructive way that provides a resource to people who have come out of these very uh, difficult situations and have uh have have had trauma 
uh, put upon them and that they've had to endure this and, and, and are now living with trauma, what can we do to help them understand where they are, no matter what the topic was, but mm-hmm. how to deal with trauma and, and giving them very healthy tools. And, and Kendall and Kendra and Jillian are just the best in the business and they do a great job. They do. Well, we hope that uh, you subscribe right now uh, to their podcast, the Raceless Gospel Podcast with Starlet Thomas, and the uh, Discovering Wholeness Podcast with Kendall Rathus, Kendra Frazier, and Jillian Drader. Now, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're Autumn and I sat down with Reverend Dr. Terrell Carter, who is a great friend of the pod. He is the chief executive officer at RISE and is always delightful to talk to. So stay tuned. Discovering Wholeness is a new podcast from Good Faith Media for healing trauma, for unearthing self. Because trauma is so pervasive in our communities, it comes into our spiritual spaces our churches. Mm. And I'm wondering how trauma is expressed in religious communities. My experience of of sitting in the the pain, the shame, and the terror at times with some of the people that I have um, sat with that have experienced that judgment, but to the degree of those kinds of really strong words like abomination and you're going to hell and it's so heart-wrenching. I'm Kendall Rothis, an author, feminist theologian, ordained minister, and spiritual director. Join me and my colleagues Kendra Frazier and Jillian Drader as we gather each week to discuss trauma and spirituality to stay grounded as we heal ourselves and walk alongside those who are healing. Join us and learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, we have a very special guest returning to the pod. Reverend Dr. Terrell Carter is the Chief Executive Officer of RISE, a nonprofit organization working to connect communities with local institutions to empower the revitalization of neighborhoods in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Carter is the former Vice President, Chief Diversity Officer, and Special Advisor to the President at Greenville University and Director of Contextualized Learning and Assistant Professor at Central Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Carter has a new book entitled Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology. It arrives on April the 15th, and you can pre-order the book right now at Judson Press or Amazon.com. And also, Dr. Carter is part of Good Faith Media, serving on our Strategic Advisory Board. Dr. Terrell Carter, welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you for having me back. We're very glad to have you here. We don't have many repeat guests yet, so you should feel very honored. It's like Tom Hanks on Saturday Night Live, basically. (laughs) I feel special. I feel very, very special. If you come on a third time, I mean, there's a T-shirt and everything. Frozen yogurt. It's exciting. Wait, wait, wait a minute. If I am on the board, advisory board, do I not get all that anyway? (laughs) Well, that's true. Good point. (laughs) (laughs) So before we jump in to talk about your new book, let's talk a little bit about your recent career change. You became the CEO of RISE. Tell us a little bit about RISE and what you're doing to empower neighborhoods in greater St. Louis. 
So RISE, thank you for bringing that up or asking that question. RISE Community Development is a nonprofit organization in the city of St. Louis. And um, the way that I'm framing it is, is we help to make better neighborhoods and better communities by serving people, by developing building projects, and helping to influence public policy. Uh, the goal of RISE is to make better neighborhoods by helping people uh, obtain affordable housing, as well as everything else that goes along with finding a place to stay. So uh, we do everything from build four, uh, 10 to 14 single family homes to 300 uh, unit apartment buildings all at one time. Uh, so we make our bread and butter off of helping people by building housing, but we, in addition to that, we uh, consult city government in the city of St. Louis to what is called North County. And that swath of land from the city of St. Louis to North County are primarily um, urban, smaller neighborhoods. Uh, one of the things that came out uh, through the work of the Ferguson Commission after Michael Brown's death was they started to, to you know, study and see how many municipalities the city of St. Louis had. And we have the most per capita in the United States, and I don't say that with any hyperbole. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we do is we help those small municipalities as well as uh, cities in southern Illinois or directly across the river from St. Louis. Uh, we help their city governments understand how to uh, do planning, uh, anything that it needs to happen in order to make a community, a city, a neighborhood better. We do that as well. Uh, one of the privileges I have is being the new executive director. I'm in an intentional transition process with the former executive director who's still on board for a few months to help me get up to speed. Uh, but one of the things that the board of directors has tasked me with is, is to envision what the future could look like, uh, not just in housing, but in doing so many other things that communities need. So um, it's the, the, the board is wide open for me to consider through prayer and speaking wise counsel from the employees that are here, but also from listening to the people that we serve first and foremost of what they need and how we can try to serve them and help make their lives and their communities better. Wow, that is fascinating. Now, you come to this job uh, after a very long and lucrative career um, with, I mean, just amazing how I think God has worked in your life, Terrell, to bring you to this point to, to serve as CEO of RISE, because you're a former police officer, uh, you're a trained theologian teaching at a seminary, uh, you worked as a, a vice president diversity officer at another university, and now you've done this. How has God prepared you for this work and you told us a story off of uh, before the uh, before we hit record that this was kind of divine intervention bringing you to rise so talk a little bit about how your theology training and your uh, past careers have prepared you for this this community uh responsibility that you have now you know, I we've talked about this before. Um, I understand my life. My goal in life is to answer, to respond to the call that God has for me, which is to serve people, whether in a traditional church setting or in non-traditional ministry settings. Uh, everything, I think personally that everything that I'm involved in is ministry. Uh, I began in the construction industry when I was 14, 15 years old as a laborer, and I worked my way up to a carpenter, sales agent, uh, property manager, and then a project manager managing $55 million worth of construction. Uh, then I went on to be the executive director of a senior social service agency that 
uh, I became that because of my experience and my relationship with a particular construction company. And then I became the executive director of a community development corporation that's a lot smaller than RISE. But my dream had always been to um, be in academia. So uh, the Lord blessed that one day I got a call from uh, Central Seminary about a job opportunity. And uh, that was my dream to go and to serve at the seminary that had made the most impact in my life. And I served there for three and a half years. uh, And that became somewhat of a drag because I was living in Kansas City and commuting back and forth, serving as pastor and being a husband and father. Uh, So I was blessed to then work at Greenville. And again, I'm in the world that I thought I was going to retire from. My dream had always been to be in higher education. Uh, Last year in August, I was at my art studio um, and I was minding my own business and two people knocked on the door to my art studio, two people I've never seen before and I've not seen since. And we're having a conversation um, and they realize I'm a Christian and they say the husband is a couple, a husband and wife. And the husband said, I think we're here for a reason. And I think the reason is, is to ask you, are you where God wants you to be right now? And my response was, what are you talking about? I'm in my dream job. I'm doing exactly what I've been preparing myself to do for all these years. Mm-hmm. He said, well, I challenge you to, to fast and pray and see what God tells you. And this has happened once before in my life. And so I wanted to honor what I thought, okay, potentially what God would be saying. So I went on a month long fast and the day, literally the day after the fast ended, my phone began to ring about this opportunity at Rise and I received three phone calls in a row or three days in a row. And then the following week, the chairman of the board and search committee called me to say, hey, your name has come up. Would you be interested in having a conversation? And so uh, for me, it was, you know, like you said, divine, (laughs) not intervention, but divine something. So (laughs) I look at this as the next step in my calling and to be truthful, my hope is that this is the last place because RISE has such a long history of doing good Mm -hmm. and serving people. And there's such a great need um, that I could see myself, um, you know, and my prayer is to continue to be here for as long as they will have me. And I'm still serving as pastor of Webster Girls Baptist Church. And uh, I believe that we are in a good place as well at the church. So I'm in a very, very good season of life right now, to say the least. Okay. And I have a new book. So yeah. what else What else could I be waiting for? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, do you think, I mean, we talked a little bit or mentioned uh, a moment ago that you're a former police officer. Do you think your time as a police officer has helped you understand the needs of some of these communities now that you're now serving and, and listening to and trying to empower? I do. And I'll, I'll give a, a practical example. Um, yesterday uh, in the city of St. Louis, um, when, after Mike Brown was shot and killed, and then another police officer shot and killed somebody else, there was some, uh, not riots, but some protests that occurred in downtown St. Louis. And I think this made national news. Um, an undercover police officer was beaten by a group of white police officers. His coworkers, they did not know it was this black guy was a undercover police officer. Anyway, that they have gone to trial and the trial ended on Friday and guess what happened? An all white jury found these all white police officers not guilty. I didn't even so, need you to finish it because I knew exactly right, how exactly. this was going to yeah. end, unfortunately. <laughs> right. exactly. And I'm sorry for laughing because it's not funny, but it's almost, we're numb to it. So sure. to answer your question, yes, Mitch, it's, I can have the conversation with people because I have been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm not. I will never say that African American culture is monolithic right, because sure. it's not. 
my experience is not the exact same as someone else's, but uh, in general, there are probably some common traits to what we have experienced. If we have all lived in St. Louis and have lived in particular neighborhoods and gone to particular high schools, I can probably guess a few things that we have in common. And so, yes, I am able to, I understand, I think I understand some of their points of view, but also what I did learn as a police officer was um, to how to treat people like they're human. Uh, and we've talked about this on the last um, um, broadcast or last interview. Um, I was forced to recognize that, um, you know, people are people. And when they're under stress, they may behave certain ways in which they would not any other time of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that customer service, that trying to see the humanity of all people has translated to everything that I do when I was the, you know, just at my last job, uh, my last calling at Greenville University, you know, you have students from all over the United States and overseas, and you treat them, you know, in a way that honors their humanity, mm-hmm. honors God's image in them. And also, uh, one of the other things that I learned as a police officer was how to stop and to try to assess any kind of circumstance uh, before I make some kind of off, you know, off the cuff kind of decision uh, to think and to be more intentional. Sure. Uh, but even the way that I talk to community members, like I'm talking now, I'm trying to, you know, moderate, modulate my voice and my speed and to make sure that I'm speaking clearly and all those different things. I learned that being a police officer. Mm-hmm. So everything about, about me being an officer has translated into the leader that I am now. Right. Well, I just think that that experience that you had as a police officer just is invaluable when it comes to working with neighborhoods because, you know, those of us who've been in the academy or in institutions, sometimes we get lost in those academy halls and institutional halls. Um, and we're not out in the neighborhoods as much as you would be in a position like a police officer. So your interaction with neighborhoods and community leaders and uh, residents just had to be invaluable to what you're doing right now. So it sounds great. It is. It, it, it has been extremely invaluable. And ironically, one of the challenges I've faced is, is because I've not been at one place, you know, in the academy for 10 to 15 years uninterrupted full-time. I mean, I've taught adjunct for 22 years, but because I have not been a full-time professor for 15 years or because I have not been a full-time whatever for 15 years, people have questioned that. And to be truthful, Rise and Greenville um, are both said, no, this diversity of your life experience helps fill these kind of gaps that we know we need help filled. And, you know, we honor that, we welcome that. Uh, But there have also been multiple times when I've been told, nope, you don't fit the status quo. So um, you are not the right person for this. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, while you still have your police officer hat on, um, even if it's a bit askew, let's talk a little bit about what's going on right at this moment. Um, The trial of Derek Chauvin. We talked with you extensively over the summer. Um, You facilitated a conversation for us on Good Faith Media about policing reform after the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many others. Um, right now, as a former police officer, what are your thoughts on the trial and the possible outcome? Um, unfortunately, uh, my my thoughts are not necessarily positive, just like they were not with the recent trial in the city of St. Louis. 
So I, I try to be honest. And what I mean by that is, so Autumn, whatever, whatever way you are portraying yourself or that I understand you think about yourself, I want to honor that. So I try to, I will have a discussion with you and about you from that vantage point. I will not put my own whatever on you and try to read you through that lens. Mm -hmm. So I try to do that when these kinds of incidents happen as well. And especially for white citizens who don't necessarily know what it's like, or they, you know, their experiences, they may not have as many African-American or just people of color as friends or, you know, be that familiar with their life experiences. So um, one of the first things I recognize is that the defense attorneys, it's not their job to tell the truth. Mm. It's their job to bring doubt into whatever the case is. And unfortunately, it's very easy to raise doubt in, in, in the United States anytime uh, that a minority and a police officer is involved, even when we have video evidence. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just it's disheartening. Uh, so for the, the city of St. Louis case that just occurred, they had everything from the personal text messages that the police officers sent to each other the day before saying that they were going to beat somebody, that all they needed to do was get a white witness. They literally said, just make sure you have an old white guy near you who is believable because if he said that you weren't, you didn't do anything wrong, then you'll be fine. They put all this in text messages. Then you had multiple other police officers testify against these officers to say, here goes what we saw them do. And they even had the, uh, the undercover officers' uh, cell phone footage and the destroyed cell phone. When they realized that he was a police officer who was recording this, they destroyed his cell phone. And they sent internal emails at the police department to say, look, we're sorry. Can you take one for the team? You don't send those kind of messages when you think you haven't done something wrong. And in the midst of all that evidence, a jury still said none of them were guilty. So it, it it's, and I want to be honest again to the jury and I don't know them. I don't know what they were thinking, uh, but it's, it's very hard for me to understand how people can make those decisions. And unfortunately it will not surprise me if that nine minute video evidence is disregarded and uh, in the case of Derek Chauvin and and the person that he killed, uh, it will not surprise me if that video evidence is disregarded for, oh, well, he was a drug addict. Well, that doesn't mean he needed to die. No. Well, he had this particular history. Well, that still doesn't mean that he needed to die. We, you know, part of the point of the book, and I'm not trying to just rush to talk about the book, but part of the point of every book that I write is, is that we view particular people in particular ways when we don't do that to anyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, we give white people the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. and our white people experience is the, the foundation of all experience and the white person's way of thinking when compared with someone else's way of thinking is always the right way. Whatever they doubt needs to be doubted. Whatever they affirm needs to be affirmed. And I don't say that in a facetious or a, a you know, condescending way. It just is the way our nation has been built. And my, I, I hold out hope but it's, I know it's going to be a few generations from now before this happens that, um, you know, that that kind of mindset changes. All we have to do is look at January the 6th, you know, yep. when Black Lives when Black Lives Matters, you know, groups did it. It was a high crime and treason. But when a group of gun toting Proud Boys does it, they are called patriots. You know, yeah. why are certain people patriots? And they took another police officer's life right. and 
hurt multiple police officers. And that, I mean, that's what we fought against, or that's what we talk about is so wrong with Black Lives Matter. Yet when this particular group of people does it, it's them, uh, you know, well, Terrell, that, their constitutional right. That's a great segue into the book, uh, mm-hmm. Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology. Um, you know, for our listeners, let's just begin with a simple question. What's bootstrap theology? I mean, you've kind of been describing it a little bit in your remarks, but uh, define it for us. It's bootstrap theology is this idea that a, if a person, it, it's from Second Thessalonians passage where Paul says if a man, if a person is not willing to eat, then they should be not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. It's the general idea that a person has to earn their position, earn their value in the church and in their community. And it's more detailed than that. I give seven points to what bootstrap theology is, but the big umbrella is that a certain people, let me rephrase it, certain people have to earn their right to be a part of a community. If they don't earn that right, then we don't have any obligation to welcome them or to treat them um, in certain ways. We can treat them like property. We can treat them like outsiders versus treating them like the way God would have us treat them. In the introduction of your book, you share why this topic is so important to you. Um, oh my gosh, and... the story of your grandparents was, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sitting there just weeping. Uh, just, I could uh, picture them. It was a great story. Yeah, my twin brother and I, and every book I talk about my grandparents, every dedication is dedicated to them because I say to Genevieve and Jerry Carter for life more abundantly because they are the ones who raised us. My grandparents, neither one of them, they made it out of the eighth grade and that was it. Uh, they both worked a very menial job um, to take care of not only their fam, their children. They had four children. One died shortly after childbirth, uh, but they eventually raised me and my twin brother as well. And they loved us unconditionally. Um, they taught us, you know, my, I am the man I am. I have the faith that I have because of my grandparents. But one of the things that they also taught us was that because we are young black men or because we are black men back then, we were younger black men. Um, that we had an uphill battle. Now, they didn't say that for us to feel sorry for ourselves. They just wanted us to know that the playing field is not equal. Because you have the skin color that you have, because you lived in the neighborhood that you live in, because you speak the way or because whatever it is that makes you you, people are going to second guess you and they're not going to want to give you opportunity because of that. And that what they taught us has played out in our lives multiple, multiple times. And so what they really wanted us to do was to understand that we would have to be better than everyone else in order to at least have, even have opportunity. And to be truthful, again, my twin brother and I have lived by that. That is the reason why both of us are way too educated and way too driven. Mm-hmm. It's because, uh, you know, we understand that as soon as we stop, then somebody else is going to be able to come in and say, nope, he's not working hard enough, so here goes somebody else who's going to replace you. Or, oh, this is what black, see, this is what we told you black people will do. They they are lazy, they are whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, I, I, I think I told you on the last, no, I didn't, but in prior conversations I've shared with you before that 
my twin brother got hired as a director at a Fortune 500 company in St. Louis. And his first day, one of his white subordinates said, oh, you're our new affirmative action hire. And my yeah. twin brother has four master's degrees and mm-hmm. was much more successful than that entire department by himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that wasn't 20 years ago that this was said. It wasn't said 15 years ago. It wasn't said 10 years ago. I mean, so, right. uh, and we can see on a daily basis how when a minority, and the book is not just about minorities, uh, I, I highlight the disconnect between how this bootstrap theology is used against minorities against women and against those that we consider to be poor as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, how the church also or primarily plays a part in this this disconnect or not mm-hmm. uh, treating people who they don't think rise up to a certain level, how they treat them in uh, improper ways. And you do a great I, job. I'm, in the, I'm sorry, Adam, go ahead. I'm so sorry. I just, you are, you are hitting some points that I've been sitting with um, for the past year, year and a half. And this may be, we may need to edit all of this out, but just wanted to, to speak very quickly to the, the things that your grandparents told you and your twin brother, especially as you were younger. Um, this past year, um, my kiddo has some special needs and, you know, we, we are very socially constructed white people, as Starlet would have me say. Um, you know, my husband's an attorney, my background's in education. We are fierce advocates for our children. But my son um, was in kindergarten, six, and he was he was spiraling. He was violent. He was not listening in school. I mean, he was having a very hard time. And as I walked that very hard road with him, um, I just kept thinking about how many children have the issues that he has that are very hard to to you know diagnose. But like, what if he didn't have us as parents? What if his skin color was darker? Like he would not still be in a typical classroom today. Um, his transfer wouldn't have been approved, all of these things. And I don't know what to do with that. You know, like I, it definitely has given me a different perspective to look at other people, but I think it's something that we have to really look at and acknowledge in our own lives too, this bootstrap situation. Yeah, and you know what, I want to, so number one, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, so I want to honor what you just said, your transparency as well. And, uh, you know, I, I gave you a compliment about your family before we even started. <laughs> so I uh, I appreciate that you and, and I recognize, I get to see all the pictures of all the love that you all share on a regular basis. But I don't necessarily, and you didn't say this, but I'm also acknowledging that part of that is not your fault. So I am thankful for you and for your son that, you know, you all were able to get him the things that he needed. And so... I don't ever want someone to feel like I've done something wrong. And again, you didn't say this, or I feel bad because no, it's a blessing for you to be able to do that. But also on the flip side, we do have to work to change the system. I was reading an article this morning about uh, in Georgia, you know, a fifth five-year-old kindergartner had the police called on him because the kid left school and didn't want to return. And they called the police on this child. Why would you call police on a kindergartner or a first grader? You know, it, it weaponizes. Mm-hmm. This is part of the problem that we have in our society. And if I'm not mistaken, they did, They never identified the name. I mean, the, the, the skin color of this student. But with the name that they gave of the mother, it's very clear that this child is a minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, you know, and I do ask the question, like, wait a minute, how many times did you know, Autumn's child have. Uh, he was a runner too. And no one ever called right. the police. Right. <laughs> right. But it, it, again, that's, that's how we, but that is part of this 
this disconnect in how we view children in certain communities and what schools we allow them to go to, how we resource those schools, and what we allow to happen at those schools, what we don't allow them to happen at other schools either. Uh, so this is a bigger policy question. It's a bigger legal question. It's a bigger, but it's also still a question that the church has to answer as well, because we will sit back, regardless of whether I'm brown or whatever, we will still sit back and go, oh, look at them versus look at that. What can I do? How can we get involved? How can we help? Uh, how do we influence policymakers? Can I run for the you know, public school board or can I run for, like, so I have now been invited to be on the board of directors for a local school. So that's part of what I am doing now to try to make an impact. And one of the first things that we're doing is we're doing um, diversity, equity, and inclusion training. And I'm not standing over someone saying, you all are evil white people. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is, what do we want to be? And what are the steps to help us get to what and where we want to be? And we start with faculty and staff and the board, and then we take that out to parents and to the community, and hopefully, prayerfully, we make a difference that way. You know, as I was working through the book um, and what you're describing, it, you know, my initial reaction was one of frustration and anger when I kept thinking about this idea of, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, and I was just wanting to shout out loud. Uh, as you, you know, rightly were dismantling it, uh, exploring it, and, dis- and then dismantling it, wanted to shout out, well, not everybody has a boot that they can they can pull up. You know, for, first of all, you know, we need to recognize that, that, uh, you know, in our culture, in our society, that just pulling yourself up the bootstrap, well, there's a lot of people out in the world that don't have boots to pull up. Uh, and, Hands and, to reach them or, right, you know, right, right, right. there are barriers but, there. But then I, the book took me further, Terrell, and this is what I really appreciate about your writing style and, and the way you constructed it. Um, you started talking about replacing bootstrap theology with the gospel of generosity and justice. Mm-hmm. Because then I just started thinking about, well, you know, this whole idea, this whole concept, what if everybody had the same boot that they could pull up, you know, and pull themselves up? Does that even make it right? Is the whole idea, this system that we have built, you know, theologically, economically, socially, this system of works-based, um, that we're constantly at work, we're, we're constantly having to prove ourselves. Of course, the natural question is, who are we proving ourselves to? It's never really hmm. about God. It's about it's about other people, and, and it's, it's a control issue because— if it's all about work and it's all about labor, then there has to be a boss to tell you how to labor and how to work and what is appropriate. And this this entire system was just, you had really had me thinking <laughs> at the end of this, thinking, you know, wow, we do live in this system that is is really a, a, a house of cards that can tumble at any time. And so what do we replace it with? And of course, you provide us with that answer, a gospel of generosity and justice. So, um, you know, as we bring this to a close, talk about that, because that's the hope of mm-hmm. breaking this thing down, but replacing it with an entirely different worldview and structure that is rooted in Scripture, and primarily, and this is what I love about it, it is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, the the problem that we face, or one of the problems that we face is, and I say, I point this out in the book, is we are not biblically literate at all. Mm-hmm. What we do is we get our theology from our politicians and from people on television versus going in and digging in the word ourselves to find out what it says. If we did, we would understand the point of work in the first place was not to make us rich or for us to gain provisions and to do things you know, for our ego or our legacy. It was to fulfill God's mission of making the world a better place. God gave us the idea of work in order to, to model what God does in creation and then to make life better, not just for ourselves, but for other people. And unfortunately, that is nowhere close to being what our model is for the 21st century. It's about acquiring things and being the number one, being the best, being the whatever, when the gospel clearly tells us we are not even supposed to be thinking about that in the first place. And it never ceases to amaze me that my more conservative friends, and when I say more conservative friends, that doesn't mean that I am not conservative. It doesn't mean that I'm not liberal. What it means is, is people who think differently than me. When my more conservative friends say, oh, well, this is what it means to be a Christian, that I have to vote in, in order to you know, stop abortion. I have to vote. It's not about voting in the first place, but that is not what being a Christian is about anyway. That Those singular kinds of issues are not about what our faith is about. Just like it's not about living in a particular neighborhood and protecting ourselves and, and being pro-police or anti-police. We make our faith about everything that it should not be about primarily. So if we had a be- better grasp on biblical literacy and read it, not filtered through the politics of Republican or Democrat or Green or whatever, and I'm not saying any of those are bad, right. but if we filtered our politics more through what the Bible says in the example that Jesus gave us of loving the lost, bringing the outcast in, providing for those who cannot be provided for. He said it plain and simple. What are the, what's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love others mm. as yourself better than yourself, whatever the proper way of saying it is, is to love God and to show that love that you have towards God by serving others and making other people's lives better. I want to ask you a question, and it's probably going to get both of us in trouble. Um, probably not you, because you're going to answer, answer this beautifully. Um, But the question is this, and this is not a right-left question because we are all guilty of it, Um, and I'm not even talking about money per se, but I'm talking about system. Mm -hmm. Do you think capitalism, as it is functioning today, is anti-gospel? Wow, that is a really good question, and I'm going to answer that, but that's the first time anyone has ever framed that question in that way. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of the restoration of God's relationship with all creation, and we believe that that is culminated in the salvation act that Jesus performed or that Jesus was willing to go through. So the gospel is the good news that God wants to be in relationship with all that God has created, and that is finds its culmination in the salvific excuse me, work of Jesus on the cross. Does capitalism serve any of that? <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, right. capitalism in its this present form 
does not restore anything. I mean, it does provide. Now you are able to do good with money. Mm-hmm. Yes, how? So let's just use Rise as an example, or you could use uh, Greenville University, where I was just blessed to serve. I mean, those are systems that you know exist to do something, but in the end, everybody wants to make sure that they're getting paid to do those things as well. Yeah. So, uh, in its current focus, in its current setup and its current trajectory. No, I do not think that capitalism serves the gospel the way that it should. Okay. The challenge is, do we have another system available? Sure. I'm sorry, go ahead, Adam. No, you're totally true. Yeah. So what's the alternative, I guess? Because yeah. we're not saying go to socialism.com yeah. no, no, no. with promo code. Autumn, <laughs> Autumn had the distu- distinct, um, I don't know. Autumn used to be a church member when I was uh, a pastor in a local congregation, and her and her family were wonderful. Uh, but I don't remember the sermon that I preached one summer about Jesus Monopoly Loaves Board. Loaves and the Fishes? It was about Jesus Monopoly Board. Well, if Jesus oh. were to play Monopoly, what would his board look like? Yeah. You know, yeah, there and, wouldn't be a boardwalk. <laughs> you know, is, it would, it be a, a, would it be about acquisitions? You know, and, and no, I started asking. Yeah. It would be about giving away what he had, I mean, which is what he did. Exactly. That, and so that, right. And so that's what I'm saying. So at, we don't have what is the system that gives that. It, it's, it's almost the, the running joke. Like we want to work ourselves out of a job. Mm-hmm. Meaning we want to do our job so well that we provide people with resources, that we equip them so they can do everything they need to be able to take care of themselves and they don't need us anymore. Mm-hmm. What kind of system exists like that or is able to exist like that on a large scale on a uh, a nationwide scale. I, I have no idea, but that sounds like a good, uh, actually, you know what, maybe we could write a book together, Mitch. I would love that. <laughs> I would love and that. That would be the, that would be the focus. Right. <laughs> we, we would be ostracized and have the, uh, conservative churches in the, in the United States, but oh, well. <laughs> well, I mean, if you start to think about it logically and again, you know, centering this all around the person of Jesus, who we call Lord and Savior, that I asked the congregation when I preached that sermon, so what did Jesus own? I mean, what? <laughs> I mean, you would have, we would have called him a freeloader. I mean, pretty much that's what he was. He, he, yeah. he walked from town to town. Uh, he depended on the generosity of other people. Um, didn't have a lot to his name, didn't own land. Didn't, I mean, he, he just wasn't. So the disciples don't even take any supplies. You, what right. you do is you live off the goodness, the grace of other people that you come in contact with. And that we is... call him a hippie. That's what we call him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. So, I mean, he is the epitome of everything that, as a red-blooded American, it like goes against everything that we think about. Uh, when, especially when we think about this, uh, you know, you, you mentioned in the book, Protestant work ethic. Um, that, that wasn't that wasn't Jesus. I mean, he he worked no. and he labored, and but in an entirely different way than we think about it. But again, we have made Jesus into a political and a financial aspect of our lives. So when Donald Trump was running, I remember a very prominent evangelical pastor. When someone said to him well, you should turn the other cheek. And he's like, I don't have to turn the other cheek. Jesus never told me to turn the other cheek. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> You're the pastor who should know what that verse says. You just contradicted the thing that you say you most believe in. Mm-hmm. But that's the point, though, That we, is what we have done. Instead of, and I try to point this out slightly, I mean, somewhat in the book as well, 
we have, we do not, and I'm saying we in the royal we, and it's a very general statement. It's more about us acquiring things and achieving things versus living as God would have us to live in community. Mm -hmm. If we could get to the point of living together in community the way that God wants, the way that Jesus exemplified and that the early church exemplified, life would be a whole lot better for everyone. Mm -hmm. Life would be a whole lot better for everyone. Absolutely. Well, Doctor, I think that was his more to tell. I think it was. (laughs) You already (laughs) answered the the last question. Uh, That's your more to tell. The book is Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology. It arrives on April the 15th, and you can pre-order the book right now at Judson Press or Amazon. So make certain to log on after you turn uh, off this podcast and buy Dr. Carter's book. It is a wonderful, wonderful uh, portrayal and analysis of bootstrap theology and providing an alternative, a gospel of generosity and justice. Thank you so much, Dr. Carter, for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. You all are two of my favorite people, and you know I say that uh, without any kind of snarkiness. I, re- I really appreciate you all, and thank you for uh, spending time with me. And thank you for tuning in this week to Good Faith Weekly, and until next time, keep living good faith. Lot Carey is proud to bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest pastors coast to coast. Our new podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, delivers wisdom from the black church for the whole church. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or listen online at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y.org. We look forward to the pilgrimage with you. Thank you.